everyone. Welcome to Bunch of Brooklyn. We're your hosts, Lucia and Zillian. Today, we speak with Ryan Yang. He's an actor, a producer, but more importantly for this podcast, we focus on his work with Andrew Yang and Stop Asian Hate. We talk about Asian Americans becoming more politically engaged and how do you sort of keep this engagement going? But before that, I think Sian and I want to chat a bit about you know, civic engagement for Chinese citizens, as well as like what's happening with Asian Americans. So Suyan, how do young Chinese people sort of approach politics and civic engagement, if, if at all? Yeah, so my understanding of the civic engagement is citizens' participation in activity that address some aspects of the social problem in a way to improve public good. So I think I see more of non-political civic engagement here happening in China among young people. Like people would organize some very grassroots activities such as care for the children or donation to children in rural areas and organize some disaster relief whenever there are some disasters like Zhengzhou flooding or COVID, but I don't see that much of political civic engagement like advocacy or activism in China. I see that. it's So you're saying that there's a lot more like philanthropy or zishen, right? Like there's yeah. a lot of like mm-hmm. organized philanthropy work to help society move forward. And I mean, it, I think in a way it is kind of advocating for reducing poverty, right? But not like active engagement in like politics and criticizing politicians or criticizing like policies or, or actively trying to change policies. And like, so was it surprising for you when you came to the States and sort of witnessed the difference in political engagement here? Yeah, it was quite a surprising experience for me. It's my first time to see student groups or community groups coming together to support a candidate, no matter it's presidential or city level, county level. Not too sure if you guys have uh, saw the news about Meng Wanzhou. I did, and I sort of read it, and it's kind of interesting, right? Because <laughs> there's so much to unpack. But Suyuan, why don't you sort of explain to our listeners what happened here? Yeah, so Meng Wanzhou was released by the Canadian government and returned to China a few days ago after three years. And can you explain who Meng Wanzhou is? So Mo Wanzhou is the current CFO of Huawei, the telecommunication giant in China. Mo Wanzhou was detained in a Canadian airport in 2018 and has been in house arrest at her home in Vancouver. So after three years of negotiation and court sessions, Mo Wanzhou was finally approved to return to China. So Chinese netizens were really excited about this news and the level of patriotism I saw on the Chinese internet was pretty unprecedented, even compared to previous years. Like compared to 2008 Sichuan earthquake, like I 
I kind of see similar level of picture autism there. Like people post on their WeChat moments and Weibo about how a national hero Meng was. And and why do you think like that sort of reaction happened? So it's quite divided. Some people do think the whole thing about Meng Wanzhou is a U.S. plot. And Meng handled it really well and for national interest as well. But others do think Chinese government was trying to use this case as a tool to fuel more nationalism and also the sentiment against U.S. And just to be clear to the audience, right? So Melanjo, she's like charged with espionage or like charged with fraud? Charged with fraud. Uh, okay, yeah. So she was... She was charged with fraud and the U.S. wanted to extradite mm-hmm. her from Canada in order to try her in the U.S. But what happened was she got detained under house arrest and then there was negotiations between China and uh-huh. the U.S. And I guess like where Chinese netizens felt like her going home to China is like a big political win yes. for China mm-hmm. on the global level. Because in the past, like China never had soft power right? Like it it never had the sort of power to be able to negotiate for things. China's always had to sort of like take a step back and and not be able to like win these things. And I think she just became this like figurehead for China being able to win a soft power battle Mm -hmm. essentially with the US. Yeah. And did you see, I guess, like any sort of similar reaction or like any sort of different level of reaction for like the last year where Chinese people outside of China were getting abused or harassed or scapegoated for for COVID? Like, did you see any sort of like netizen reaction towards that in, in a similar level? Yeah, I feel the reactions are quite divided as well. Like for those who have tithe with the U.S., like who has been to the U.S. before or who has studied in the U.S., they are very empathetical about this situation. But for some other people, they will be just like, oh, like, why did you go to the U.S. at the first place? Like, no wonder you will get abused by by them because it's very uh, still a white dominated society. So some of them will say this kind of sarcastic words. So it's pretty much very divided. But as in like, what about the level of interest? Like, was there less news coverage about it versus, you know, this more recent thing of Mo Wanchou? Yeah, there's definitely very little coverage about the AAPI hate compared to Mo Wanzhou's case. Like Mo Wanzhou's case, when I open my WeChat moments, like it's full of Mo Wanzhou's updates and about how people were receiving her at the airport in Shenzhen and posts about the speech, her speech. So it has been dominated for a few days already. So the level of interest is very different. Do you have thoughts on why? I guess right now, at this moment, uh, a lot of Chinese netizens' interests kind of turn inwards as well. They kind of care about what's happening in China, the unfair treatment Chinese citizens got overseas as well in this kind of geopolitical conflict between China and the U.S., they get more defensive about their opinions. 
So it's come at very interesting time. Yeah, so Lucia, so you have this experience both in China and the U.S. Your parents are based in Shanghai right now. So do you、mm-hmm. and your parents care more about Chinese or U.S. politics? The the funny thing is is that my dad kept his Chinese citizenship, and my mom naturalized to become American. I I think just at at the core though, like my mom has been very proud of. How far China has come, and so she usually shares like opinions of like Chinese perspective, and I think that's very appreciated and it's like interesting to just hear from you know her generation her perspective because it's not like she hasn't left China either. Like she she's lived in the states for I I, I would say like over fifteen years, and you know she went back when I was in high school and have stayed there since, and so she kind of sees both views. So they talk about both sides, but my parents are kind of <laughs> interesting in that they strongly believe in in the Chinese government. They strongly believe in like the direction in which the Chinese government is going because they have like a proven track record, and you know they have this like a lot of national pride,、um, which is interesting because like they also have a lot of like gratefulness towards America. And they're really thankful for like their experience and being able to come to America and provide a really like good life for for me and like for themselves. And so when we talk about like Chinese and American politics, they're pretty frank about it. When they were in America, they used to like look at China and they're like certain times they would like criticize China, right? But now that they've like live in China, they criticize America, <laughs> and so like. I think the thing that my mom always says is like where your butt is is where your political alliance lies. I think that's very true, and that's why I think podcasts like these and discussions like these are so important because you can't see the full picture sitting where you are unless if like you've been in the other person's shoes or. Or been across the pond, so to speak, or like you know, been across the ocean and recognize that how how big of like a political win this whole like moment Joe thing is. But I think vice versa, Chinese people can't fathom feeling the way that Asian Americans have felt here, being othered and being bullied or being harassed or like constantly seen as the foreigner after. Generations upon generations of being here, right? So, so it's just it's pretty interesting、hmm. hearing、uh, both sides. Yeah, I agree. Was you you mentioned about the perspective? Like whenever you're in China, maybe you got another perspective about what's happening in the U.S. Yeah. So, Lucia, have you participated in like any phone banking、uh, protests or any civic engagement in the U.S.? Yeah. So since we're talking about civic engagement. Shamefully, I have not actually participated in any sort of like active like phone banking or like volunteering at poll booths. My really good friend Lynn,、uh, Lynn Guay, who is my former co-host at, in my last podcast, she's very involved in in the political sphere and like she's done a lot of it. I would say that you know later on, as we talked to Brian, similar to Brian, like I ran for student government, <laughs> and that's like the extent through which I had encountered a semblance of of politics, right? So I think it wasn't until you know the 2016 when like sort of the election happened and 
I was looking around and I was also hosting the, the, my, my other podcast, Wreck the Boat and recognizing like how important it was for us to, to be involved in politics, how important it was for us to have a seat at the table in government and to have people who look like us, who think like us, who've like sort of experienced what we've experienced advocating for, for Mm -hmm. us and our rights. Cause if we don't have people like that, then we don't really have the a way to make change. Like we don't have a way to inform. We don't have a way to to get funding, and it's just really hard to to push things forward that way. Absolutely. Uh, actually, when I was in LA, I had an internship at uh, this organization called Asian American Advancing Justice. So at that time, mm-hmm. I was helping preparing some documents for phone banking, also some ESL for immigrant parents. So that was my first time to get to know all these concepts. And I really learned a lot, actually. Well, you've done more than I have. So (laughs) (laughs) you're more civically engaged than I am. (laughs) I mean, with that, I I know, Sean, like there's some background on like, you know, how Asian Americans participate in politics that, you know, we'd like to walk through with our audience before jumping in with our conversation with Brian. Yeah, thanks for having me back on again. Props to Suyuan for getting engaged right as you got in the country. You know, that's awesome. I personally felt like once our previous president got in power, there was many lines that were crossed that made me feel compelled to kind of get involved and did some phone banking, did some protesting, and also kind of was the reason why I joined the 1990 Institute the first thing I worked on was writing a script for a video to urge people to go vote for the 2020 presidential election. You know, we focused on the fact that, you know, Asian Americans are usually historically not very engaged. Part of the reason is because politicians don't reach out and kind of message their platform in a way that many Asian Americans can understand. Part of that is language access, which is a big deal. Thankfully, in the most recent election, there have been a number of more initiatives and emphasis to reach out to this Asian American voter base, which has been largely ignored. And we saw a very large increase actually in voting uh, and participation. I think from my understanding, there's an NPR article that came out recently that cited that of the eligible voters for Asian Americans, there was a 25% jump since 2008 in the number of people who actually voted and in the number of swing states that really decided the election, given the, the closeness of it, Asian Americans were a very prominent amount. Like for instance, in Nevada, we're over 10%. In Florida and Texas, we're from like, I think four to 6%. So it's great to see kind of Asian Americans becoming more galvanized to come out and engage with the community and kind of make their voice heard. And hopefully we get to see more of that and looking forward to hearing what Brian has to say about that too. But before we get to Brian, please subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Uh, You can also email us with any questions, feedback, or requests at b2b at 1990, that's 1990institute.org. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Bund2Brooklyn. That's B-U-N-D-T-O-B-R-O-O-K-L-Y-N. 
All right. Thank you so much, Sean. So onwards to Brian. Hey, Brian, welcome to the 1990 podcast. So excited to have you on board today as, a, as one of our guests. I'd love to have you introduce yourself. And also, we know that you've been connected to 1990 from a long time ago and way, way back. So I'm really curious of your involvement with 1990 as well as what you're currently working on now. Well, it's good to be here. Good to connect with you again. We've our cross, our, cross, our paths keep crossing in various <laughs> ways, it seems. But this is an exciting new podcast you guys are launching. And yeah, my history with 1990 goes back a number of years. I was asked by a previous executive director at some point in time through my work in association with Hawaii to be a juror for this this student uh, short film contest that 1990 sponsored a number of years back, probably predates even your guys' involvement. So for two years running, I was a juror for these films that students were tasked with telling a short story about the um, U.S.-Chinese intersection and, and whatever inspired them in their, in their three minutes to tell that. And so I remember it was like high school and college students. And so I, since I was working on Hawaii 5 for a number of years, you know, I got connected to Hawaii and, and that year, 1990. They asked me to go out there to speak to students at Punahou and a couple of other schools um, on the island um, just about what like my career, what I did, and also just kind of like sharing my, my experiences with China as well. Not a bad place to be. I was, uh, I was there <laughs> myself just a few weeks ago. I, I think it's really exciting to have you on the podcast because you've just have had this like plethora of experience spinning across entertainment, politics production, and a few more. So, you know, for the purpose of this podcast in particular, like we'd love to dive into a bit of your work with Andrew Yang, obviously, as as you like sort of managed his campaign, uh, especially around fundraising. But yeah, like sort of curious, like what that was like and see if you have additional sort of questions to kick it off. Well, I... You know, I'm 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 someone who wears a lot of hats, um, as you alluded to just now. I guess the old saying is, "Jack of all trades, master of none." Right, and I think I fit that description pretty well. I have a lot of different interests, but my core interest lies in in storytelling. I've always always wanted to be involved in 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 telling stories in TV or film format. And now that's kind of spilled over into audio format too. Podcasts have become such a fierce platform of being able to share stories. And so, so ever since I was in college, you know, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. And I went to school up north in the Bay Area. I'm in LA right now. And after I finished college, after I found myself in New York City and through a, a college friend actually made a connection with a fellow named Andrew Yang who at the time was just starting out with a venture that he he and a fellow uh, colleague from their corporate law firm decided to leave their jobs to start and chase this dot-com dream. 
And I was one of the early hires there. And this was in the late 90s. And so, I mean, he knew my deal. I started off as an actor in this business. And today I'm, I'm, I wear a lot of hats. I produce and I act. But as an actor, I needed to be able to kind of leave and go for an audition, come back, you know, do my, as long as I got my job done, kind of have the flexibility to, to sort of come and go. And, and, you know, it wasn't like so disruptive to the point where I was just gone all the time. You know, it was like a couple times a week, need to hustle out. So Andrew was really cool about that, especially in this sort of startup environment where anything went. And that's how I came to know him. And Brian, and, uh, sorry to interrupt, but the the startup that you worked with Andrew on is called Stargiving, right? Yeah. That's the yeah. One? Okay. Yep. Yeah, it's, it's called Stargiving. And so so this is all, I guess, kind of like back fodder for like my foundation of like getting to know Andrew, building myself up simultaneously as like a you know, I, w- I feel like working for Andrew was kind of my like real life MBA. I considered for a time going to business school. I mean, like I said, I really, I, I really was like a, a, a jack of all trades, master of nothing. I was like, okay, maybe I'll, I'll do this. I'll do that. I, I had dipped my hands in all these different things. And working there really opened my eyes to what, you know, startup life was like being an entrepreneur and just really eventually even like segueing into becoming a producer. Because a producer is essentially the, the the person who has to each and every project you work on, every film, every show, every podcast is like its own mini venture, and you need a CEO, you need an operator, you need someone behind each one of these things. And so, so I think you know, looking back, I really credit Andrew for giving me that foundation just by starting that idea and me coming and working for him. It gave me the, uh, I guess, the mini wings to 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 learn how to like. I mean, I wouldn't say fly exactly, but start to like, you know, go from crawling to to walking to running, and like get, gaining the confidence in myself to be a business person in this world. So, I don't even know if Andrew knows that. I never really. I, I'm just thinking about this aloud right now. But that's how I came to know him, and how I and, and how he indirectly helped me even become a, a producer later on in life. Thanks, Andrew. <laughs> so, so later you joined Andrew's presidential campaign as a campaign manager. So, how did you get involved with that? Yeah. Um, so, my my official role was actually director, regional fundraising director on the West Coast. It wasn't a long, hard road to that decision, but it, I didn't come to that role right away. He called a bunch of his friends. I mean, he likes to tell the story when he decided to run for president, he like, he called everyone basically in his phone book and said, Hey, I'm running for president. And this was like sometime late in 2017 for me. And I like probably everyone who picked up his phone call at the time thought, what do you mean? You know, you <laughs> running for president of what? Because there's no way he meant the white house. We didn't know Andrew as someone with those kind of aspirations. And Eventually, when settled in that he was totally serious about that, I was like, "Okay, here we go." Uh, so, what what do you do when your friend calls you to tell you he's doing something? I basically just said, "All right, here we go." I, I changed my, my my social media banners to Yang Twenty Twenty. I started to just tell my my own family and friends. Um, I organized a very informal mixer with with Andrew in Los Angeles when he came out here in the summer of 2018. And basically, just as a friend, 
tried to share the word, get people to read up on him, listen to his, you know, send, sending them like a podcast or some kind of appearance that he, you know, he had made. And early days, I mean, no one was really listening, right? It was like people, even that mixer, I remember thinking, yeah, we, we felt like it was in a friend's backyard and a lot of people came, but I think they came for the free drinks and, you know, it was a nice summer day and it was just like, I have nothing better to do on this Saturday afternoon, but I don't think anyone like walked away thinking this guy's serious, right? And it wasn't until he went on the Joe Rogan podcast and that kind of flipped a switch and turned uh, quite simply uh, <laughs> millions of people onto him because Rogan has a large listenership. And, and after that, things really started to pick up with his campaign. He started to make more mainstream appearances, more podcasts, like he, his popularity just soared and, the, and his campaign had to grow as a result, right? To keep up, like people are like, oh crap, it's actually working now. So they started to open field offices. They started to hire more people. And then that's when I got involved more officially on the Yang 2020 campaign, uh, because I was already doing all this stuff like as a friend on a volunteer basis. And then got to talking to some of their campaign people because I knew them from day one. And they're like, well, shoot, you can help us grow Yang 2020 in, on the West Coast. You're like already doing all this stuff. Why don't you just do it with an official email address and get put on the staff? So I said, yeah, why not? I, I, it's all the same to me. And like, as a friend, I probably wouldn't have gone to some of the debates, but as a staffer, I did. I went to, I think, two of them, like in Ohio and Atlanta. And that was, I never thought I'd ever go to a presidential debate. So it was, it was interesting to get to see that from the inside. But yeah, that's, that's, that's basically the story of how I got involved. That's really interesting. So I was wondering, did you have any history of political engagement in the past? <laughs> uh, not unless you count my sixth grade class president experience. <laughs> So wow. uh, nice. did you win? Uh, I did. I did win. I did win that race in sixth grade. My, but that was more like my mom, like forced me to run for class president. Uh, it was like a resume builder thing. Your mom forced you to run? Oh yeah. I had this strict, like classic, like sort of tiger mom situation, you know, how would you, how would she force you to run for class president? Like, did you have to campaign and everything? Did you have yeah. to make a speech? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to speak. You have to make a speech, which she drilled into me. Because I remember at that age, I was also like, I'm glad they did this in retrospect. My parents like forced me to go to Chinese school, and so mm-hmm. although I have to say, all of my Mandarin was not learned through through that school. Like I can speak Chinese. Okay. Same here. Yeah, <laughs> Chinese school is like it's just an, a, an obstacle. That's like, oh my gosh, you're eating into my cartoon time on Saturday. Or like Friday night, I could be hanging out with my friends, whatever, you know. But the one thing from Chinese school that I did, I I, I feel like I, I don't know, I gained something out of, I got something out of was the speech contests. Yan Jiang Bi Sai. Yan Jiang Bi Sai. Yeah, you remember every Chinese kid. Yeah. We got forced to do that. My mom just like, she was my coach and she like, man, she, she cracked a whip and like basically made me just go re- recite over and over until I perfected it with every little <laughs> like hand gesture and, and the direction I looked and the, the, the pauses, you know, like baiting them in with the way I would, I would deliver the speech. And so, um, man, so, so essentially that was what I had to do for the, for the sixth grade class presidency, which was 
my, my mom was like, all right, we're going to do this as well. Do you remember um, the speech? You do you know, remember I, your campaign I, promises? I, I, I do remember. The, okay, I'll tell you why I won. I'll tell you why I won. I don't, I don't remember the, the speech entirely, but the one point that I, I really got everyone excited about was this idea of bringing to the school at the end of the year something called Olympic Day. And basically, it's what it sounds like. So one day at the end of the school year, when people have mentally checked out, it's maybe the last day or close to the last day of school, there's no school. Everyone just gets to go outside and, and play. And you do like relay races and like tug of war and like, you know, whatever. Like you play, yeah. you play on the playground and do sports. And so when I said I would bring Olympic Day to the school, the audience, they went nuts. They went bonkers and they, they like literally, I remember started like chanting and like, that was it. I said, I would bring that. And I, it, it, nothing else mattered. You created the original Yang gang, Brian. <laughs> sort of. uh, I don't know about that. It was, uh, it wasn't like Yang gang, but it was like some early iteration of, yeah. Like, like, well, no, here was my slogan, my slogan was start your year with a bang, vote for Yang. So ah. I, I had all these signs made that said that. And yeah, and that was also, I think, my mom's idea. My mom was my campaign manager. Um, so so you, you know what this means, right, Brian? This means that you're going to have to send us a photo as proof Oh man, for our audience. I will see if my mom still has that. But look, I, I went off on a tangent because I'm sure that's not what you meant in terms of my experience politically. So I have to admit, before working for Andrew and helping my friend you know, run for president of the United States, I was a very typical sort of like, I'll vote when it comes around kind of politically engaged person. And I probably didn't even vote all the time. I certainly didn't vote in local elections on a regular basis. I was one of those people living in New York for 12 years. I didn't vote for mayor a single time I lived there, which should come as no shock. Like I learned through Andrew's mayoral run this past year that historically 12 to 15% of New York City residents actually bother to vote in the mayoral races. I mean, that's like 12 to 15, like think about that. It's like shocking, right? He, he admitted he had never voted in his 25 years of living there. And he got a lot of flack for that, which is, I understand, but at the same time, like the 85% of you, like who are being hypocritical, like, come on, give me a break. And so I voted for like presidency and stuff like that, but I would have never dreamed I'd work for a presidential campaign. I would have never dreamed I'd actually work for any campaign or get this politically involved in a million years, to be honest with you. But it wasn't just Andrew, you know, that, that also galvanized me. And I think a lot of people in the last four years I think there was a certain president in office that made us pay a little more attention to politics in general, you know, when he came in office in 2017. And then we, we were like, wait a minute, like, what is going on here? And you see the sort of the polarization of America. And so you can't help but like care or want to get involved on some level. So when, when that happened coincided with my friend deciding to throw his tat in the ring, I was like, whoa wait a second. And then I, I became, for me, I became super political, you know, in the spectrum of politicalness against the world at large, I'm still nothing. But like, for me, it was a total 180. Yeah. Yeah. So Asian Americans used to be at the sideline of the civic engagement 
But since Andrew's presidential campaign, we can see Asian Americans have become more active politically. Did you see that engagement stay in the long run, or you think that's kind of a short-term thing? I mean, look, only the future will tell, right? History is still being written every election cycle that comes around. But I think that I've seen a noticeable increase in interest from the AAPI community in, in politics. Certainly, we saw that bear out in the Senate race, you know, in, in early part of this year. I think that, again, the last presidency really opened a lot of people's eyes. I think Andrew and people like, you know, Michelle Wu, who's like on the verge of becoming mayor in Boston, right? Other, other political figures or people who have aspirations in the field are bringing people, bringing the traditionally sort of like non-engaged Asian American over to the other side. You know, I, I, th- I, I see my friend who runs APIA Vote, right? Christine Chen. I know that there's a, an organization that's brand new that based out of New York that is going to try to activate the Asian Vote through like the blockchain and and other like digital you know means which you know I find fascinating so I think I think a lot of people are waking up a lot of people are actually doing something about it and I think I'd like to think it's going to stay I think once the genie is out of the bottle um you can't put it back in is it like night and day I I still think it's like incremental but we're making progress and that's definitely encouraging and you know there's always work to be done because it's like until every last person is registered, until every last person exercises their right to vote, until every last person makes a donation or gets involved, like beyond just voting, there's always something more you can do. But I do think there's been a lot of progress made and I don't think that's going to go backwards. I think, I, Brian, I really resonate with what you're saying, how prior to a certain president being elected, a lot of folks just kind of went on with their lives And the most recent, I think, awakening towards how important it is for us to be involved, how important it is for us to have a seat at the table in order to move forward the things that we care about or advocate for our own communities didn't really come through. And I think personally as well, like I feel like I wasn't as civically engaged or civically involved or as like aware of what sort of happens in the like you know, space or the closed room where decisions are made, right? And so I think that awakening to your point has like brought a lot of folks who are interested in making change. It's given them a lot of power and it's given them a lot of drive to to continue moving forward. So I definitely think that's that's super helpful. I guess the the question is like, how do we kind of maintain that drive? Because it is work, right? Like it's, it's a lot of work to like keep up with politics. There's like elections happening all the time, right? There's the mayoral race. And then later there's like the governor race. And a lot of folks that might be listening to, to this podcast have like a lot going on. It's like, how do you sort of balance and like keep abreast of all this stuff and, and be a good citizen while still making sure that you can kind of go on with your day to day? Yeah, it's a good question. Cause I think we all we all lose sight of like I mean I think it's there, there's like a voting drive going on right now as we're recording this right it's like reg, National Voter Registration Day or week or something and I'm just like again 
like I know we, we get voter, we get political fatigue, just basically, it's like, man, we just got off of like raising all this money and, and raising awareness about doing this, you know, and, and already it's like midterms. And, and so what I would say is like, in order to like put perspective around this is like, look, if you want to see a better world for, for you, your children, your grandchildren, you know, just as like, every day you wake up, you go to work every year, April, whatever comes around, you have tax filing every, you know, there, there are certain things that are just entrenched into our existence. Right. And civic engagement is, it's not sexy. I get it. You know, no one wakes up and goes, I can't wait to go like knock on some doors or like share this information on online or, or go read up on, on all the policies right, and that's that are going nobody's on. Like, offering you know, Olympic day it. at the end of the school year. That's why. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I if know. Then people that, are, geez, would be man. super excited to phone <laughs> bang and super excited to, to go vote. You know? <laughs> yeah, I know. They, everyone, they got this all backwards. Um, just listen to my mom. No. So, but anything that's good, I feel like you have to work, you know, you have to, commit and lay the foundation. And I think this comes with age too. This is something that, you know, and I'm, in, I'm inspired by the millennials and the, the Gen Z blocks where I feel like they're waking up to things earlier than, than we have traditionally. And I think social media has a lot to do with that. But at the same time, you know, I think, I think once you have kids, once again, perspective is more around you. Actually, Andrew, the reason he ran for presidency, if, if people don't know was, you know, he always says it's because I have kids and I want to leave the place that we live in a better place than I found it for them. Right. And for them to leave it for the next generation. And so, so again, it's not necessarily fun or, or something. It's a responsibility. Sexy to share. It's a responsibility. It's a responsibility that we all, by simply agreeing to, it's a contract that we have with this country, right? You live here, I mean, for that matter, wherever you live in this world, right? And, you know, I just wish people would take that responsibility more seriously. Yeah. Um, the numbers are still very apathetically low. Yeah. Just for even as simple as voting. But when it, when you dig in even deeper to, like, just when we talk about a real engagement, you know, it drops off even further from donations to yeah. to banking to the rest of it. And so, yeah. but that's that's the world we live in. I guess I have a question for you sort of transitioning into like a different and broader topic around like the recent environment around Asian Americans and violence towards Asian Americans. Like, do you feel like any of that has sort of awakened the community to the fact that in order to make change across this nation, like we have to have a seat at the table politically, we have to have, you know, more representation in media, we need to be seen as human. And I think from like a broader topic perspective, just sort of like, I guess, curious about your involvement there, because it, although it's not sort of like directly political, it's, it's still like a form of activism, right? Getting other people mm-hmm. to see us differently. It's advocating for our community. It's making sure that we're seen not just as like perpetual foreigners in this country, but more so as humans, right? Like that mm-hmm. just came yeah. here that, you know, have the right to pursue happiness and want to live good lives here in America. Right. No, absolutely. I mean, I would never 
call myself an activist. I mean, I, that term really belongs, you know, other people truly who deserve and earn that, that label should be carrying that. But, but I, I feel like my form of activism, if you will, is like you just said, is through what I do. And, and in terms of storytelling and media, portrayals of our community, people that look like me or, or us, I always feel like the media has such a huge responsibility in shaping the way that others or even ourselves think about us, right? Because if you think about it, all of us growing up, we grow up on media. We all have our favorite shows, starting from cartoons to, to whatever you, you're currently, you know, what's ever in your queue on your, on your Netflix now. And it's, you grow up not even thinking about it, but, but like when, when you consistently see images of Asians being the perpetual foreigner, being a martial artist, being other, right? It's, it, it just steeps into the mainstream consciousness. That's, that's all Asian people are good for. And it works, it works the other way too, by, you know, for that matter. Like our parents, where, where do people in our community get stereotypes formed around the black community or, or the brown community, right? For that matter. Like it just, it works all ways, right? Up and down, left and right. And so, so I, I never take that responsibility, you know, or what I've chosen to do with my life for the most part lightly, you know, and telling these stories and, and putting a, a, a lens on people in our community that's authentic, that's three-dimensional. It doesn't mean we're perfect people. There are, there are people in our community that are doing really bad things, right? There's always that. But, but I, I feel like when it's always portraying us as gangsters, it's always portraying us as Fu Manchu. not American. Yeah. yeah, Fu Manchu. That's where it gets really like, okay, we have to paint the holistic picture of our of our non-monolithic community. And so so that's yeah, that's what drives me every day. I do think that yeah, it goes hand in hand with politics and, and all the things that thing things that have been happening last year, year and a half around Asian hate and the xenophobia that arose from COVID-19. Absolutely. I mean that's why you see so many entertainers and politicians out there arm in arm, you know, shoulder to shoulder trying to fight this fight together, right? And I, I got really involved with that last year in producing a number of messages, you know, video messages, social media messages. We had a campaign where we were selling apparel that we took money from and donated it back to various causes that were, were fighting the good fight. So it's all connected. That's like the All Americans campaign, right, Brian? The one that you mentioned. Yeah, it was, uh, it was, well, it was, it, it, it evolved into being called All of Us. Okay. But yes, it was actually something that was founded by Andrew coming on the heels of his presidential loss. And so he's always thinking of ways to try to improve society for America at large, but definitely also for Asian Americans. So um, I give him a lot of credit for that. And, you know, as long as I've known him, as long as he's known me, he knows that this is a very passionate cause for me, right? And I, I do it through media. But if you need me boots on the ground to go do something for the community, I'm more often than not, as long as I have the bandwidth, like I'm, I'm all about that. So we're all in this together. And that's why, again, going back to this, like the original sort of question that set this off is like in terms of why or, or 
how do we get people engaged and stay engaged and what's what's it all for you know like even though it's not fun or sexy or there's no olympic day guarantee at the end of it like we we need to do this because every every voice matters every every ounce right to to keep propelling our community our voice our our standing in in this country and and it's i see strides being made which is great which is tremendous there's there's still a lot of work ahead there's still a lot of things that are outside of our control that are very disappointing and depressing quite frankly but but when i see grace meng you know making strides in congress getting bills passed when i see president biden responding to that i mean that's that's huge those are things that you it only could take someone like grace right to get that that anti-Asian hate bill, massive hats off to her and the people that worked on that yeah. to get that passed. I, Those are the things we don't we don't see day to day, but you know these are the things that are going on behind closed doors that need we need. Absolutely. And, and so yeah, I think I really like what you said about politicians and entertainers coming together and using their platforms to reach more people, because I think at the end of the day, it's like, it's an educational process for, for the community. Right. And oh, Sean, just uh, pinged over. So it's the COVID-19 hate crimes act. That's the act that yes. uh, Grace Mang passed in Congress. Um, but back to sort of the, the like politicians working together with entertainers to like spread the word, right? Like I think at the end of the day, like when you're campaigning, it's all about like educating people, right? It's about educating people about like who you are, what you stand for. And I love the fact that like, you know, entertainers can use their platforms to spread messages and and help support causes that they're they're passionate about. And we're starting to see more and more Asian American entertainers, um, not just like become lead roles and superheroes, but also stepping out and using their platforms to advocate for the community. And I think that's so important. And I think that's also what's going to help bring us forward. Oh yeah, definitely. A lot of my, a lot of my friends, I, I, I think of Daniel Day Kim instantly. I mean, he's, he's been the, the flag bearer of, of our community's the messages that we we all are trying to get absorbed into the mainstream. You know, he's he's been in on so many hearings on Capitol Hill in the last year. He's he's constantly doing the yeoman's work, and I, I appreciate him so much yeah. for doing that. I think you should give yourself some think, credit, Brian. We can only we really appreciate the work that you've done in bringing entertainers together well, with politicians and like advocating for the community. And even though you don't credit yourself as an activist, I do feel like the work that you've done has really spurred a lot of activism and have inspired the next generation of Asian Americans to be more involved and use their talents in order to like push agendas forward. So give well, yourself some credit. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I, uh, I thank you very much. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm a foot soldier in this community. So that's, that's how I see myself, you know, just doing what I can. I, I feel like you're more than a foot soldier. I think you'd definitely be, be in the, in the, uh, commanding, commanding tiers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As, only if I bring Olympic Day. Only, uh, only if you bring Olympic Day. <laughs> I mean, just to kind of, I guess, like bring it all back, yeah. Brian. So, did you participate in Olympic Day? Well, oh my gosh! So <laughs> I hate, I, I hate to inform you guys that I never delivered on that that promise. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I tried to Campaign get the promises. school to do it. Oh yeah, I was just another politician that was making stuff up. 
but the school wouldn't allow it. I, I, I pushed for it. And even though I said it in the speech, when push came to shove, they were like, we can't, we can't take a whole day just to goof around. I was like, but my mom's school did it. And <laughs> yeah, they, they weren't. <laughs> well, there you go. <laughs> Full circle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but that that still means you should you should still vote and you should still be involved and you should still try to make changes even when people tell you no. <laughs> That's the spirit of our nation, right? Yeah. Definitely. I feel like this is great. Is there anything in particular that you're interested in talking about that like you feel like we've missed or any like upcoming projects? I mean, there there are a few things. Our giant leap program just had a pitch day today. In fact. Congrats. And and can you explain what Giant Leap is? So in, in line with the sort of uh, storytelling activism, I recently uh, helped co-found, this is like within the last year, a writer's accelerator program that's focused on finding evolving Asian American screenwriters, television and film screen screenwriters, who uh, are trying to get their voices heard, get their stories set up, sold, produced, out into the mainstream, into the you know, onto the airwaves. The model is basically kind of like a Y Combinator tech model, where you you find a bunch of different startups and then you you incubate them and then you help them grow over the course of, in our instance, it was twelve weeks, where each of the fellows, the writers, there were seven of them that got mentored by um, more established writers, and then at the end of the twelve weeks, which culminated today. They have a pitch day with, um, today we had about 40 different executives, Hollywood executives, people who are looking for ideas and content. They, they all came and it was in a Zoom room. They sat in on, on and listened to all the pitches. So uh, we got incredible response. Every project afterwards, people reach out to us and say, we want to talk to this. We want to read this. We want to talk to this group, read this. And so... So that's the whole idea. So we're hoping, you know, time will tell, but this this class of projects hopefully will will get some of these things produced, and and we want to keep repeating this model. So we just had this just uh, just happened today, like literally uh, wrapped it a couple hours ago. It's uh, a culmination of the last like three four months of work, and and we really we started this as in response to the encouraging statistics of sort of the increased amount of interest in API stories in Hollywood. And at the same time, the dearth of established uh, writers, right? And creators, because what we found, like there's a bottleneck in, in the industry here where in response to crazy rich Asians, for instance, right? From 2018, the doors have opened, right? And people are, all the execs in Hollywood, the studios and networks are like, oh, Asian Asian stories can sell. Wow, what a concept. Maybe we should look into that. <laughs> yeah, what a concept. Yeah. Maybe we should look for more of these ideas when we've been trying to kind of, you know, sell them on that idea for the last, oh, I don't know, like 100 years. But it finally through, I think, a combination of different things, social media, the rise of the Far East, the, the idea of content being able to sort of travel more, more seamlessly, because you saw in Crazy Rich Asians, like it was well received in other parts of the world. It was a story that was set in Singapore. It used like international stars like Michelle Yeoh, as well as, and Henry Golding, as well as Asian American stars. So it's just kind of this hodgepodge of different like energy 
Eastern Western energies that, that got put together and it made a lot of money. And that's what Hollywood responds to is the color green. And so they, so everyone is like, oh, we've got to, we've got to find the next crazy rich or, or, or story by an Asian American. Right. And so what happens though, is this bottleneck is, is, has been created because everyone wants to what? They want to work with Adele Lynn, who wrote Crazy Rich Asians. They want to work with John Chu, who directed Crazy Rich Asians. They want to work with the, the same set of actors who are in Crazy Rich Asians. Everything is just became about, let's just hire everyone that worked on that movie. And so that's great for them. All of them are booked for the next 25 years <laughs> because now everyone wants to work with them and only them. Well then, okay, if you only want to work with these people, like how are you ever going to break out of that, that bubble? You, so we need to, we need to have, and I borrow this term from Viet Tham Nguyen, the Pulitzer winning novelist who wrote a book called The Sympathizer. He uses this word narrative plentitude, right? Like that's all we're asking for. Any marginalized community is in Hollywood is always asking, we can't be just this or that. Yeah. And we can't just keep using just this filmmaker or this writer. Yeah. There should be, we, we can't be treated as a quota. There has to be, again, options, choices, plentitude, right? And so, so Giant Leap was a direct response to saying, okay, we need to create a pipeline of more writers and more voices that, that the industry can choose from. Mm -hmm. Someone's got to cultivate these voices because there's only like a small set of approved writers, right? Or writers that are like, oh, I worked on this big show, this big movie. So right. we they don't have the opportunity yeah, to like step right. up and and, and make a big splash. Um, yeah. yeah. But like Brian, I mean, to, to tie it all back in, right? Like you're kind of creating the next generation of screenwriters who would hopefully tell our stories and, or just tell like great stories in general. And maybe like down the road, mm -hmm. there will be Asian representation in politics and maybe down the road, like in one of your scripts that one of the writers that you incubate, there's going to be an Asian American president. I, I hope so. I think that's definitely around the corner. I, I, I've heard these ideas actually, you know, inspired by Andrew's run. People had asked me about, you know, what do you think about this show idea? So you're definitely on the right track. I think there's strength in numbers. That's what it's always about, whether it's voting, whether it's supporting a film that comes out, whether it's creating a, a platform for more writers to grow. Like the more we, we come together, the more opportunities we create, the more we support and uplift one another, the more we're going to just continue to flourish. It's not like we aren't already here with a seat at the table, but the more we're going to own that and take up the space and, and just be entrenched in this country to continue to combat this idea of being an other, being a foreigner, you know, that's, that's what informs me. That's what, that's what drives me. And whether it's in entertainment, politics, sports that's all tied together absolutely thank you great way to to end the end the interview so brian thank yes. you so much for your time this is great um really appreciate yeah, your thank stories. you thank you all it was my pleasure